Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode of The NIDS View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther with Curtis McGiffin and Jim Petrosky. Jim, Hey, Adam. And Jim, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good day. You, you know, uh, we were, Jim and I at least, were at the Nuclear Deterrence Summit in D.C. the first week of February. And it was a, it was an interesting conference. You know, there's two, sort of two big government deterrence conferences each year. One is the Stratcom conference that's always in Omaha in July or August. And then every year in January, February, there's the NNSA sponsored monitor exchange sponsored deterrence summit, which focuses more on, you know, instead of the DOD side, it focuses on the DOE NNSA side and you, they're very different flavors. And so it's, it's good to go to both because you see the two sides of the nuclear enterprise. And I, I, I sort of wanted to get from you, Jim, what was your, your take on this year's? Cause I think for you, it was your first, time to be at the deterrent summit what was your take on the conference yeah, well thanks adam yeah actually this was my first non-technical t- summit or conference that i've ever been to i've you know lived my life in the uh, technical world and nids you know did our first conference last year at uh, another conference which we're attending this year called the hardened electronics and radiation technologies and we learned a lot there about uh, conference attendance as an exhibitor. In fact, while I was even at the Deterrent Summit in Washington, D.C., I handed out piles of my pens, and I even handed out a few of our incredible NIDS mugs and uh, tumblers. And so I was able to talk about NIDS uh, in general. So that was a good thing about the Deterrence Conference. But seriously, Adam, I think, and and Curtis, I I appreciate you guys uh, uh, give me the time because I know you. I work for you guys, right? So you gave me the time to go to D.C. It was sort of nice to be in D.C. at this time of the year. We had warm weather. Uh, people were out on the mall, which last time I was in D.C. for any great period of time, it was during COVID and the place was just completely empty. So it was nice to see people walking around. And that was the piece that I took away from this conference. A lot of good speakers, some incredibly important people from uh, many different organizations in government and speakers that were in industry. And of course, the NNSA, uh, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, uh, Department of Energy, congressional uh, affiliates that were there that were working the deterrence angle. And it was good to get there, as Adam said, to get there and rub shoulders and shake hands and get to know the people that were there. That's always the most important piece about going to a conference personal interactions and i thought that was the best piece for me because i saw some people i haven't seen for a fairly long time that are quite important in the deterrence world and so if you go to a conference like this i think that was important Uh, but from the subject area standpoint i'll have to admit i've gone to many of the technical conferences and in fact i just today was talking to curtis about going to a conference and he said you know the technical conferences are great it's a little hard to understand some of that language that you guys use Curtis, thanks a lot. I like you. Sounds like R2D2 um, all the time. You know? 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Some of the writing looks like <laughs> R2-D2 wrote it. But anyway, uh, no, it was good to hear the speakers. And I'll tell you the thing I really liked about it was the format where you had a speaker speak from pretty much a prescribed uh, script. And I always wondered about that, but now I understand why the speaker spoke from a prescribed script and that kept them on time and on script, which I'm terrible at doing. That's why I'm going to, at the end of this pod, or at the end of this podcast, everyone's going to wonder why Curtis and Adam even came. Cause I'm going to just talk the whole time. <laughs> but the other thing that they did then afterwards is they sat down as a panel and we had the opportunity to ask some questions. And I actually got to ask some important questions about the members uh, to the directly to the members and hear their personal perspective on their deterrence topic. I'm not sure we, we use Chatham rules. I'm not sure we can define everybody that was there. I don't have the list in front of me, but some of the speakers were extremely open about their view, which is very good to hear straight from the horse's mouth. This is what our committee did. This, our committee had some, some conflict, some, some stuff we had to rattle around to work it out. And that's what government is about. That's what deterrence is about trying to find the best view there were alternate views at the uh, at the conference. And then, of course, every day at lunchtime, you'd sit down at lunchtime and sort of do a pseudo work meeting or a friend or get to know you kind of a meeting. I got to do many of each. Uh, and then the exhibitors there were great. They uh, the, the many exhibitors from their companies basically showcased what they did and what they were capable of bringing to the fight. And I was impressed with several of them that were able to provide either equipment that was valuable or insight through consulting and or analysis for people. So that was what my takeaway was from the conference itself, a, a, a conference that I've never attended, uh, completely different than what I was expecting. I really expected to get there and be lectured like Adam does to me all the time. Just lecture me for hours and hours on end about why we need to deter people by looking at them and being angry. But we're not doing that. You know, we're doing other things as well. So that was my takeaway. So, Adam, what, what did you take away aside from getting to meet me and having dinner with me a couple times? <laughs> well, I, I tell you, it, one of the big differences between the Stratcom Symposium and the Deterrence Summit is I'm regularly shocked by the number of like NNSA-affiliated people who are so I, I guess would say staunchly pro arms control and disarmament that, that always, you know, for, you know, uh, an organization that is responsible for the nation's nuclear warheads, their development, maintenance, all of that. There's a lot of folks who want to get rid of them uh, within that, within that enterprise. And that's sort of, whereas, you know, sort of on the DOD side, most people say, yep, we need them. We don't want to get rid of them. They provide peace. And so the, the discussions that you have, the views of people are, are very different in, in, you know, in DOD versus DOE and NSA. And so that's one of the, that's sort of one of those things that I just, you know, I'm like, wow, uh, that, that surprises me a bit. But, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of the most senior folks at NNSA, the entire leadership of NNSA comes. They sort of give you a rundown on what they're working on. So it's really informative. 
you know, and, and you get to see a lot of folks and it's, you know, it's a useful opportunity to catch up with folks you might not see, but that one time a year. Yeah, I uh, I didn't run into as, as I did run into a few people who were very disarmament oriented. I did talk to a lot of technical folks that were, you know, we discussed technologies, et cetera. I didn't run into that as much. Um, I was surprised at the number of people in both worlds, the technical world and the non-technical world, that were at this conference to be able to talk about their piece of the fight. And I thought that was valuable, especially from the NNSA side and from the national labs. Uh, now I have a fond, you know, I have fond uh, view of the national labs, I've worked with them for so many years, and a severe respect for the scientists and engineers that are working there, because I worked with them for so long and I learned so much. And I thought it was good to see them at this kind of uh, summit, because We've got to, you know, people have heard me talk before in classes and such. We've got to bring the technical and strategic and the planning sides all together so we get the best solution on what's going forward. Um, and so I saw some of that. And while I'm talking, I did want to highlight that the NIDS is going to be at the Hard Electronics and Radiation Technologies Conference again this year. We're going to have an exhibitor's booth. And so if you're into deterrence, and you're into hardened electronics and radiation technologies, then you should come visit our booth at the Heart Conference in Huntsville, Alabama this year. And if you haven't signed up, there's still time till March 16th before clearances need to be passed. <laughs> now, the second topic we wanted to discuss is the recent release of the report to Congress on implementation of the New START Treaty which the Department of State releases to Congress at the end of January every year. And, of course, this is a, a year in which the Russians have uh, suspended participation. So there's a lot to talk about there. Jim? Adam, Adam, when I was preparing for this, I forgot, I, I forgot to think or look back at this. I don't recall at the conference, because you would think this is a relatively new report that we're talking about today. I don't recall anyone at the deterrence conference actually speaking directly to this this implementation report. I, did, did I miss I something? Don't, I don't think anybody did. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it was, it, it's, I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was sort of, you know, it was released, I think, the first day of the conference. So perhaps, you know, that was why it didn't get much play was just because it was so new at the time. But but now we've had, you know, we've had a little bit of time to digest it. And and Curtis is is raring to go. Uh, I think he's got a comment or two ready. So I'll turn it over to you, Curtis. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, I don't want to disappoint anybody. And I'll start off with my pessimistic view of uh of this report. Curtis, pessimistic? Yeah, wow. I believe in it. Well, first of all, I didn't get to go to D.C. Uh, I drew the short straw and, and wasn't able to go. For all our listeners who are wondering, hey, was Curtis there? Uh, the answer was no. Um, and um, and if but for a— We banned you Well, from you know, if we had a few more donations, we might have been able to afford it. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless— Wow, what a plug. Uh, you know, here we are. And, uh, and I'm glad you guys got um, all you did out of— uh, out of that event. Um, so surprisingly, the, the New START Treaty Annual Implementation Report wasn't discussed. This is a report that's produced every year by the State Department. It's required of the uh, of the treaty itself. It was part of that Senate 
uh, ratification and consent uh, that went along with it. That same consent that demands the modernization occur as part of the treaty validation. Uh, it was a condition in which the Senate approved the treaty. So th- these are, are interesting reports. They're required by law to be produced and uh, and uh, good on the uh, State Department. They actually produced it on time. And, um, uh, and, and we're going to take a look at it here. And unfortunately, it's not a really great read. And I don't mean that as a, you know, in an academic sense, it's very disappointing news uh, because, as we know, uh, Putin suspended Russia's participation in this treaty. Um, and and I, I think the State Department has reluctantly admitted that they are, in fact, not participating in the treaty. And that's what this report tells us. Um, and uh, and there's some pretty surprising conclusions in here that uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to um, in the most part. What I will say that is interesting is so you know what were the violations, if you will, um, besides the the that the suspension is technically a violation of the treaty, the non-verification inspections that have not occurred um, is a violation, as well as several other reporting events haven't occurred uh, at this as well. Um, and what's interesting here is the report notes that the treaty was in violation in 2022. Uh, and we didn't seem to get all upset about it. And in fact, the United States and Russia have not inspected, done verification inspections since the spring of 2020 on the on, with the onset of COVID-19. So we really don't know. I mean, it's been, uh, we're pushing four years since we've had uh, any verification on this treaty that was, uh, I would remind our listeners, was was renewed very quickly by the administration right after inauguration um, of President Biden. Uh, and in my opinion, with very little, uh, uh, you know, strategic assessment um, uh, as to the uh, as to whether or not uh, we could have done a better uh, job of getting exacting more out of uh, of the treaty had we gone to renegotiate rather than just extend it. Because in the end. What has extension really given us? Theoretically, we're without a treaty. So if we had let the treaty expire in in February of 21, um, we would be no different than we are today. Really, no different than we are today, uh, except we're, we're playing games with ourselves. Something I'll note here uh, before I pass it back to you all for your comments is that while Russia has not, per the suspension uh, under Putin's rule, did not report their numbers this year. Uh, um, The United States went ahead and reported their numbers anyway in May of 23, and that is in this report. And so we we sort of lifted up our proverbial skirts um, and showed the Russians what we have, knowing that they were not going to do the same thing in a, what in my opinion is a very idealistic methodology of trying to, to be open with an with an uh, with the the other half of this treaty that is not interested in the same kind of transparency. But Curtis, don't but you Curtis, understand that if you show them that you mean them no harm, they will then come to realize that they don't have to be aggressive or assertive either, and therefore they will be peaceful because you showed them that you mean to be peaceful. I mean, we have a track record of that working, don't we? <laughs> 
We have very little track record of that working. Uh, and uh, and I'll sum that up when I get my turn on the next round. <laughs> yeah, so let me, take a, let me take a completely different view than Curtis's very pessimistic view on this report. Because I read it, I, I tended to read it as something else. When I got to the end of it, I said, why the heck would you even write this report aside from it being required from a treaty that you're the only one following? And um, I'm actually working on an article, and Adam, you'll be getting it some, some, hopefully soon as I untangle myself from something else, from our Global Security Review uh, online journal. Uh, I began writing a, an article to talk about how our government is working for us and that they're publishing a lot of stuff that the American public needs to know about. And that's why we bring these things up in this, in this podcast. But I looked at it as someone wrote this to say, by the way, Russia hasn't been playing. A good example is on page, I think, four, or, yeah, page four of this report, where under the Russian Federation, not provided, not provided, warheads not provided, deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles, etc., not provided, warheads on ICBMs, Russian Federation not provided, and deployed and non-deployed launchers of ICBMs, not provided. The only reason I see to write this is to tell the world community, hey, by the way, Russia wasn't playing. And I don't know what those numbers there from the U.S. Are, are, are tell us, but I think what it tells me is someone wrote this to say, look, people, the Russians have not been playing. We really shouldn't have been played. It's also a nice history to go back and say, you know, extending this thing, as Curtis said, probably wasn't in our interest anyway, wasn't doing us any value. And by the way, a treaty that the only people it holds to task is yourself is really only holding yourself at risk, in my opinion. And so why did we extend this in the first place? And so I looked at this as a hit on all those organizations that should have been either pushing the treaty or saying the treaty's dead, let's move on and find out why Russia has pulled out. Well, we all know why. Curtis, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> well, let me add, let me just add on to that. Um, and I'm sure Adam's itching to jump in here. But, you know, <laughs> what's not said in this report is the real reason why Russia suspended. So they cover in here some made-up excuse that they cite that Russia, that Russia uses to, to claim. And it's so trivial, it's not even worth mes- me- uh, mentioning here. But what's re- what, what the reality is, and it's in the AP article that came out reporting on February 21st when uh, uh, Putin actually suspended it, was that that they were uh, reacting to uh, to um, what they what Putin referred to as is uh, they meaning us <laughs> and NATO I guess uh, they want to inflict a strategic defeat on us and try to get our nuclear facilities at the same time quote unquote this is what Putin said in the speech that announced the suspension. Right um, uh, uh, of this, and he's he's quoting that we're no that you know that, that that the British and the French forces aren't counted. He's complaining about those things, and and basically um, he accused the U.S. and NATO allies of openly declaring um, the goal of Russian defeat in Ukraine. So essentially, his suspension of this treaty was really, uh, I think, twofold. Uh, one of them is is to punish us. Right for our support for the for Ukraine in the in the Ukraine conflict, and and second is uh, is to really uh, hedge 
uh, his nuclear capabilities and that he couldn't do that if there was actual verification inspections going on. It takes several years to upload um, the warhead, any additional warheads into the, the capacity of their ICBMs. And it will take at least a year to download those. So understand this, American listeners or whoever's listening out there. When this war ends and Russia decides they want to play back with a treaty, they won't actually allow verifications for another year after that because they don't want anybody to know, perhaps, what any kind of malfeasant behavior they might have been doing while not being verified. Uh, and so, you know, it was Reagan that said, right, trust but verify. So right now what we're in is a situation of trust but no verify uh, because in this report, the, the American State Department concludes, okay, I'm going to jump to the end here. Um, they conclude that even though we haven't been able to verify, the United States continues to assess that there are not, that there is not a strategic imbalance between the United States and the Russian Federation that endangers the national security interests of the United States. How do we know that? How can we honestly tell the American people that we know this? We haven't inspected in almost four years. Next month or well, so, let, let, it'll be four years. This is pure. There's no basis other than let political modification for this conclusion. Go ahead. Because I've asked that question, and the response I've gotten from um, our colleagues in the government is that, you know, we have very good overhead surveillance, and we know and understand how they move uh, warheads and how they put them on and pull them off of their ICBMs. Now, you know, uh, road mobiles, uh, we don't have the same level of, uh, you know, surveillance of because they go inside things. But, you know, when it comes to their silo based, you know, we know if a truck pulls up and we, we sort of have probably not perfect knowledge, but some knowledge of are things going on in which that thing could also be maintenance or the addition, you know, the uploading of additional warheads. And so we watch them. And what I'm told is, you know, that's, you know, that's not, you know, we're, we're not, we don't see indications and warning that they're doing that kind of stuff. Okay. So and that's how in this they, report, they can say it doesn't threaten national right. security. And so that's I what would, they're saying. And I would say that if they did know, they won't tell us. Not because it's classified, yeah. but because it does it conflicts with the agenda of the administration. Um, I mean, that's not the agenda, right? Is to is to sell the the you know, the possibility that there's a real nuclear threat. Uh, much much has been made about Putin's statement that while he has suspended the treaty, he intends to comply with the numbers. And there has been much retort, even in this report, that America seems to believe that, and is trusting which is why I said we're in a trust but no verify relationship right now. Um, and, and I just don't see the basis for doing it. This is the same person who we've declared as a war criminal and, of course, has, uh, who violated the Budapest Memorandum, has uh, you know, eliminated, you know, cheated on the INF Treaty, uh, uh, the, the 
the uh, the threshold test ban treaty the is is uh, 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 brought down the comprehensive test ban treaty. I could go on and on and on. Um, you go to the State Department website where they actually do honestly lay out all of the known violations of treaties. But we continue to insist that treaties are viable um, with these with these organizations. And I and I go to I, I want to quote the great Walter Lippmann, um, you know, who said. Um, tragically, success um, um, it, with regard to the disarmament movement, if you will, and I would count arms control as a form of disarmament. That um, successfully, uh, successful, uh, successfully disarming nations um, uh, who believe only in disarmament—that's uh, the only ones you're going to disarm. And so it is. Um, uh, we're sort of in a situation here where we want it to be true so badly that we are going to ignore the possibilities um, of the risk. I, Curtis, I, I, so the other, another piece of this, and I'll, I'm going to say my comment related to that till the end um, is that it shows that Russia has learned how to use their nuclear weapons by backing out and not letting verification and making us guess whether, although I agree with you, whether they're doing something else or not, it impedes our action because we don't know. There's a void in non-verification. And so that is sort of the, the craziness of this is we see that nuclear weapons can be used effectively if you're willing to use them. And Russia is using their weapons by pulling out of the treaty and not letting us know what's happening. That's number one. And most people don't see that and understand that as nuclear weapon use. The other one is exactly what's said in the very last uh, sentence in the, uh, or the last paragraph of this report is it says today, my administration ready to expeditionally negotiate a new arms control framework to replace new start when it expires in 2026. But we don't have it. What it, it, it's no longer a treaty when 50% of the people involved in it are not participating, have suspended it, and we have no idea of how to identify whether it has been, in fact, you know, used in the way it's supposed to. I think we call that employed the treaty. We have not employed the treaty in the way it's supposed to be done or executed it properly. So it's sort of an odd thing. Like what new non-treaty are we also going to not uh you know, control. I, I have no idea. There's too many negatives right. in that statement to sort of follow up. My question, though, is I would like to ask advocates of arms control. Is there ever a case in which arms control is not good for the United States, that we shouldn't do it? Because my observation of arms control is that at least within the United States, arms control for the sake of arms control is the pursuit Correct. that it, it really doesn't matter if it hurts the United States to engage in mm -hmm. arms control that we, we don't seem to have the same view as the Russians or the Chinese. They say, well, it's not in our interests. You know, INF was in the Russians interest because they, they faced a much greater threat than we did. So, you know, they engaged in, you know, arms control. That was the only treaty I can think of in, in history that was actually beneficial to the United States, but yet we, we never learned from the Washington Naval Treaty. We, we just don't learn. We didn't learn from the Biological Weapons Convention or in, you know, any of the times when the, the Soviets, the Russians, 
cheated on everything. They bought themselves time because, you know, they we always follow. They always cheat. It's pretty standard. And then the the problem now is that Walter Durani, you know, he's back in the media. The media sort of has this Walter Durante view that essentially allows the Russians to get away with stuff. And it's, you know, it's almost, it's a, you know, you know, nothing to see here. These are not the droids you're looking for kind of wave of the hand. And the simple fact is, and because their fear is, you know, we'll, we'll, if, if we don't sort of push this narrative of arms control, it's great and we'll do it, then we could have an arms race. And I've yet to, to be convinced by any evidence that arms racing is inherently evil or, or, or bad for the U S in reality, arms racing is far superior to a actual war. And I would much rather engage in an arms race than a war and arms racing does not lead to war. Correct. Not the, arms, racing you know, often leads to war. Yeah. Um, Washington Naval treaty helped, you know, instigate a war. It led people to think, Hey, if we build up quickly, they haven't, we can take advantage of that. And and so it ha you know, I, I'm just so skeptical of this blind pursuit of arms control at all times for any reason. So I, I want to add to, uh, uh, I guess reflect on, on Adam's statement about uh, that. We might be able to know uh, whether or not they're up. The Russians could be uploading warheads. There's a, well, that's the here. argument. Well, that's the, argument. that's fine. Let me, I just want to counter that argument uh, because right here in the document on page eight, it, it says that, um, uh, Russia's violation of its obligations to facilitate U.S. inspection activities on Russian territory and provide the biennial da uh, data updates and send notifications pertaining to strategic offensive arms negatively affects the ability for the U.S. to verify Russian compliance with the treaty warhead limit. Right? The United States assesses that the Russian Federation likely did not exceed the New Star Treaty's deployed warhead limit in 2023. Okay, They're unable to verify that Russia remained in compliance throughout 2023 with the obligation to limit its deployed warheads on delivery vehicles subject to the New START Treaty to 1,550 warheads. So they're saying we're not able to verify that. Okay, but because we can't verify it, here's my assessment, uh, because we're unable to verify that there's possible cheating, we're going to assess that there's no cheating going on. That's what this report says, and that is the 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 silliness of this of this whole thing. Uh, and in our in our closing minutes here, I just want to bring up a couple things, and then I'll I'll relinquish the mic here. Uh, and that is that arms control does not positively influence Russian behavior. It never in positively influenced Soviet behavior. Okay, and it does not constrain the policies of governments that are bent on achieving military superiority. It only constrains us <laughs> because we want these treaties more than they do. That's essentially what this is. Arms control is about unilaterally constraining and shaping the U.S. and sometimes Western behavior, and it's only salient to the United States. Okay, and and the adversary will will believe that every negotiation for 
arms control is a trick by the United States to limit them, to control them. Um, and so they're basically going to agree to anything knowing that we will follow it um, and then project, right? Accuse us of doing the things that they're doing. Um, and 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 to, to Adam's point, arms control is not a treaty unto itself, right? It, or it's not an end unto itself, I should say. And it has to inform and shape a greater good, right? What is the ultimate goal? It is to it's to place either the United States or the Western democracies in a better position, not in a worse position. And we tend to find these um, that way. Um, and uh, But there is one agreement that I would say that the United States and Russia has on arms control treaties. And that is that arms control treaties seek to deny U.S. advantage. And, and that's from a U.S. perspective. We don't want an advantage. We think that that's arms racing, that that's inherently evil. And I think that the Russians agree that their goal for arms control treaty is to ensure uh, or deny, uh, I'm sorry, to deny an American advantage. That's their goal, too. So we actually share one thing in common with the Russians when we go to <laughs> arms control treaty negotiations, and that is both sides want to deny the Americans any sort of advantage. I'll leave it with that thought. Jim, your final thoughts, because we are out of time. Yeah, I don't know if it's fully applicable, but I think it'll catch our audience here. I've recently come across, I don't know the attribution of this comment, but I like it. And I think it is mostly a tribute or uh, a good connection here. And this is uh, this is a statement that has become something I just keep sharing almost every day. I won't say it's a religion, but it's getting close. And here you go. It says you can't truly call yourself peaceful until you're capable of violence. You're not, if you're not capable of violence, you're not peaceful. You're harmless. And it seems like we're trying to move ourselves to a harmless position, not a peaceful position. And that's when war will begin once you are harmless. Back to you, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, um, that's the challenge of idealism. Uh, you know, it, it really is the challenge of idealism. And it's, you know, there's idealists and, uh, and libertarians tend not to ever uh, win revolutions or control governments because, you know, they oppose violence. So that leaves, you know, communists and ra- other, you know, radicals, you know, in charge of a, of a government. So uh, at any rate, yeah, good discussion. Uh, enjoyed uh, the deterrent summit. That was a, a great trip. Good to see folks. Good to see you, Jim, in person. And then, of course, as always, you know, we, we find an interesting topic to discuss each week. So thanks for offering up this week's topic, Curtis. And, of course, I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nits View. And, as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies 
for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.